Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. In this episode, we are honored to have Catherine Neff, a.k.a. Katie Neff, return as our special guest. Our topic today is sexual harassment, obviously one that is of current interest as the Me Too movement has developed in the last few years, even though sexual harassment's been around since the dawn of creation, probably. Katie has represented females in sexual harassment cases throughout her career at Freaking Myers and Rule. Katie received her undergraduate degree in business administration from the University of Tennessee, go Vols, and returned to Cincinnati where she received her Juris Doctor or Law degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Law. Katie advocates for current and former employees in all aspects of employment law and has successfully represented employees in jury trials in both state and federal courts in Ohio. Katie is a 2017 graduate of the Cincinnati Academy of Leadership for Lawyers, co-chair of the Cincinnati Employment Lawyers Association, and a member of the National and Ohio Employment Lawyers Association. Katie is a partner of mine at FMR. Katie, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Thank you for having me. Well, we're talking about sexual harassment today, Katie. So why don't we just start with the very basics. What exactly is sexual harassment? I wish that was a simple uh, <laughs> answer. Um, so the definition of sexual harassment often depends upon uh, where you live in the country. Um, but essentially, sexual harassment is... Um, Conduct that can consist of unwanted verbal or physical sexual advances, sexually explicit statements, or discriminatory remarks that are offensive or objectionable uh, to the recipient of the of the remarks. Okay. And there are two different types of sexual harassment, at least in terms of what courts uh, view as sexual harassment. One is called quid pro quo. Or uh, which is defined as a favor or advantage expected in return for something else. We heard a lot about quid pro quo during the impeachment trial. Um, the other is called hostile work environment sexual harassment. Yeah, during the impeachment trial, the quid pro quo was you, uh, what was it? You um, give us some aid and we'll investigate Joe Biden. Correct. So we're going to talk about quid pro quo and the sexual harassment context. Um, now, 
asked, what about men? Are they protected by sexual harassment laws or women sexually harassed, harassed by another woman? Yes. Um, you do not have to be a woman um, being sexually harassed by a man in order to be protected. Sexual harassment can occur um, in the workplace to both men and women, and both men and women can be the harassers. So it doesn't matter what your gender is, as long as the conduct is specifically targeted because of your sex or gender. Yes. So you mentioned quid pro quo, and we get off track a little bit with uh, the Ukraine situation, but what is quid pro quo sexual harassment? In that, in a quid pro quo sexual harassment situation, the harasser typically uses, um, and I, I'm going to use the pronoun his uh, with respect to the harasser, although we just said that it could be a male or female. That's usually the case anyway, right? It is typically the case. So in a quid pro quo situation, the harasser typically uses his power to take advantage of the victim. For example, he could offer a promotion for sexual favors. Alternatively, um, he could take away an opportunity if the victim refuses his sexual advances. And um, I know we talked before we started, I'm reading the book She Said, which is uh, about Harvey Weinstein. And Harvey Weinstein's um, situation and what he was doing is a good example of quid pro quo sexual harassment. What he would typically do is he would tell his victims that he could get them a better role. For example, if it was an actress, he could get them a better role in a better movie or a better position within the company if it was a Miramax employee, while at the same time asking the victim to, for example, give him a massage or take a shower with him. That's typical quid pro quo. More often than not, quid pro quo sexual harassment cases involve a victim who has refused sexual advances of her supervisor or some other member of management and suffered a loss because of it. So either she's been terminated, she's been passed over for promotion, she's demoted, something like that. Us, uh, generally, with quid pro quo sexual harassment, the victim doesn't have to actually report that harassment to human resources or to some other member of management for it to be um, actionable. So meaning that the company could be on the hook for the quid pro quo sexual harassment. So we talk about like an unwelcomed advance or an unwanted advance. Um, you know, I'm trying to recall many of my cases have involved a woman who was in a consensual relationship with a boss. And at some, at some point, the relationship sours. The guy decides to stay with his wife or something else. Um, is that an example of quid pro quo where a relationship is terminated and, and one party wants to continue it? It could be if the party who wants to continue it is the person who's in the position of power and the person who has um, essentially, whether said directly or indirectly, um, insinuated that if the other party does not consent to the relationship anymore, um, then he will hold that against her. So, for example, getting passed over for promotion, terminate her, not give her bonuses, things like that. 
So it, it can be um, a quid pro quo situation if the person wanting the relationship to continue is in a position of power. Okay. So you also mentioned that the second type of sexual harassment theory is hostile work environment. What, what exactly is that? <laughs> hostile work environment uh, sexual harassment does tend to be the more common type of harassment that you see. Um, it can be created by a supervisor, a coworker, member of management, sometimes a customer, like, for example, in a restaurant business, a vendor, a contractor, essentially anyone that the employer allows into their business could create a hostile work environment situation. And essentially, this this is the um, hostile work environment does tend to be where courts vary greatly depending upon uh, where you live in terms of the definition. But it can be um, created when uh, the harasser engages in either repeated conduct, which is called pervasive, or severe conduct, which under unreasonably interferes with the victim's ability to work. Right. It has to be sexual in some nature, correct? It has to be based on gender. I can remember a case I had in the mid-90s where an ex-husband put all these slurs around the workplace, you know, calling his ex-wife a bitch, uh, very offensive material. And I remember the judge ultimately told the jury that the conduct, even though it was very offensive, had to be based on her sex. And so that's where the jury turned, and we actually lost that case because they saw it was motivated by his dislike of her as opposed to her gender. So a lot of people come in, they just say, hey, I'm, I've been the victim of a hostile work environment. There has to be some sort of sexual component or gender issue to it. Yeah, at a minimum gender, right? So it doesn't have to be... Um sexual in nature. So it doesn't have to be somebody, for example, coming on to the victim. But um, it sounds like in in your case, perhaps because it was a a husband or an ex-husband calling her a bitch that may not have been based on her gender, but maybe had been based on their relationship. Right. I I think if it were a situation where it, it was not someone who had a prior relationship with the person... But they were calling a woman a bitch uh, and other um, specifically gendered offensive comments that could be considered uh, sexual harassment, depending upon the frequency of the comments and or the severity of the comments. And what about a hostile work environment? I'm sitting here thinking, like, when I say does it have to be based on sex or gender Could it be a situation where a guy creates a hostile work environment just for the women in the organization, but not for the men? Is that sexual harassment? Hostile work environment, if if he, like, chooses the women to harass? It could be, certainly. I've definitely seen examples of men who, this is somewhat the opposite of this, of what you're saying, but where a man uh, comes in and likes to talk about his relationships uh, in a sexual nature. And he Mm -hmm. says this to both men and women in the room. Mm -hmm. That is probably not going to be considered hostile work environment sexual harassment. However, if he chooses um, only to tell those stories to the women 
at the office. Mm-hmm. That could be considered a hostile work environment because he clearly is making the distinction between men and women, and you could argue that it was based on their sex. Now, you said the conduct has to be considered pervasive. Mm. That that sounds like a word that's very ambiguous. <laughs> so what the heck does pervasive mean? Uh, again, this is this is often dependent upon where you live in the country, but um, it essentially has to be something that happens on a regular or frequent basis. Um, how much that is may depend upon how often the victim engages in um, or, or sees the harasser. So, for example, if it's a, a vendor as opposed to an employee or a member of management, and the vendor only comes by the office once a month or every few weeks, and each time that vendor comes, he makes a uh, comment that could be considered harassment, for example, commenting on her body, telling her stories about his sex life, asking her questions about her own sex life. That could be considered pervasive because it happens on a frequent basis when she interacts with that individual. Okay, so pervasive has something to do with the frequency of the conduct. Yes. And you also mentioned it has to be severe. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't, it's is not- Is that different than pervasive? It, it is, and it shouldn't be both, right? It sh- the, the courts should not require it to be both. So the, um, the classic case study law is supposed to be severe or pervasive. So either frequent or- um, and severe can be a one-time one situation. Um, severe can be a physical touching, particularly if it's to a private area um, of a person's body. It can also be a extremely egregious comment. Now, is there any kind of requirement that an employee complain to their employer about sexual harassment that's going on, like maybe by a vendor, you know, the employer, the boss may not know about it. Or can the employee just kind of sit back, keep notes, and six months later say, hey, uh, this guy's been harassing me for six months? Generally, under hostile work environment, so in Mm -hmm. a situation where it's not quid pro quo, yes, the employee has to... Uh, report it to someone in management or human resources for the employer to potentially be on the hook for it. Okay. And then what what is management supposed to do? You know, if I'm the boss and a female subordinate comes to me and says, hey, Randy, I am being sexually harassed by Joe, um, giving me notice requires the employer to do what? They have to do an investigation. And then the investigation, I presume, should be thorough. It should be thorough. Um, I think if if the employer is in, I believe, California or New York, at least, maybe <laughs> other parts of the country, um, both of those states have really good provisions that an employer is required to follow in order for their investigation to be thorough. Otherwise, if you're in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, you know, certainly you, you don't have a roadmap in terms of what mm-hmm. is thorough. However, certainly interviewing 
the victim, interviewing the harasser, potentially any witnesses to the harassment, um, uh, doing those things should at a minimum be considered uh, thorough. You know, I often hear, well, how are we supposed to decide who's telling the truth? Isn't this just he said, she said, you know, the woman complains that she's being harassed by a male. The employer investigates it. The employer asks the male, hey, are you sexually harassing Helene? And the harasser says, no, uh, I don't know what she's talking about. How and what what is an employer supposed to do in that situation where there's just the woman making the complaint, the guy denying it? I understand that it is a tough situation. Here's what I would say, though. Um, more often than not, a victim is is going to be telling the truth because it's really putting her neck on the line to accuse someone of uh, sexual harassment. Uh, it's very difficult, typically, for a victim to feel comfortable enough to come forward. Um, often, sexual harassment does occur behind closed doors in a one-on-one situation. Um, if the accused has never been accused of sexual harassment before um, and denies it and no one else heard it, no one else saw it, uh, there's no emails, there's no text messages, that can be uh, difficult for the employer to um, decipher uh, who's telling the truth. I think it's important to look beyond just the sexual harassment complaint, though, um, because you in if you essentially decide that um, sexual harassment didn't occur, then you have to take the position that the woman or the victim is lying. And if they've never lied about anything else before, if they've done everything uh, that seems every other interaction you've had with them has been credible, um, I think it's important to sort of take that into consideration. Um, You know, often I have seen employers not take that into consideration, and perhaps an, an accused has been less truthful about something else in their job or has potentially been accused before of making a comment that is inappropriate, um, maybe didn't rise to the level of sexual harassment, but certainly gave some indication that Mm -hmm. this person could (laughs) potentially engage in harassment. And, um, but because they don't have any concrete evidence, they just don't, they don't either believe the woman or just say they can't prove it one way or the other. Um, yeah, they should do as much as they can to try to get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the Me Too movement is really um, trying to hit home the point that there really is this he said, she said situation is going to happen. But until you actually start believing women, um, then sexual harassment is going to continue to perpetuate in your workplace. Yeah, I've I've often just thought it's a convenient excuse. I mean, I give the silly example of, you know, somebody coming to the boss and saying, I saw Joe take money out of the cash drawer. And Joe says, I didn't take money out of the cash drawer. But somehow the employer goes, well, wait a minute, there was an eyewitness to you taking out of the cash drawer. You're guilty. But then the sexual harassment context, the eyewitness says the guy just touched me inappropriately. 
and they come up with this he said, she said, you know, we can't tell who's telling the truth. All right. Anyway, um, how overt, I imagine there's some subtlety to all of this. There often is a lot of subtlety. In fact, most most of my sexual harassment cases um, have involved more subtle conduct. Um, and just because the conduct is less overt, um, it doesn't nece- doesn't mean that the conduct won't be um, won't constitute sexual harassment. So, and I know I'm I know I used the Harvey Weinstein uh, example before. I'm going to use him again. Um, no, he's an easy target. He's an easy target, and I'm reading that book right now, so it's on top of <laughs> mind. So. Um, Obviously, there's a lot you heard in the news about Harvey Weinstein and his uh, having women come to his hotel room and then, you know, asking them directly to give him a massage or take a shower with him, et cetera. But he also had female assistants bring him sexual performance enhancing drugs um, Mm -hmm. to his hotel room. They would uh, have to escort um, women he allegedly was going to have a sexual relationship with to his hotel room, um, which may not appear on the surface to be sexual harassment um, because he's not directing that specifically. Um, He's not directing comments or conduct necessarily to his female uh, assistants. However, he wasn't asking males to do this for him. It was his female assistants, which I think demonstrates this power issue, Mm -hmm. which often you see in most sexual harassment cases. It is an issue of power where the harasser is trying to create a power imbalance uh, with the generally subordinate, can be a coworker. Um, and um, I have often seen with the more subtle sexual harassment where it'll start with conduct that seems somewhat harmless, commenting on uh, the employee's appearance, maybe talking about the employee's physical fitness, you know, as yeah, that, that, that alone is not enough. I mean, I hear guys tell me, Hey, Randy, I, I can't compliment a woman on her new dress anymore. And I go, of course you can, you idiot. It's whether it goes some level beyond that. Right. right? And absolutely. And, you know, comments like that, I think most, most women are not going to find, uh, offensive. It's just sometimes that's where it'll start. And then it'll kind of grow and expand from there. Because in in my experience, the harasser is sort of testing the mm-hmm. woman. So if it if it is a, a comment about the person's appearance and it goes nowhere else and it never comes up again, uh obviously that that is that is not sexual harassment. However, if it then escalates to, um, for example, insisting that the two uh, drive somewhere together instead of driving separately. I, ha- I had a case where the harasser started with the comments about their parents, and it, this happened to two, two different women, the exact same thing. And he would make them stand up in a room uh, 
you know, just to check what they were wearing. And then he said, you know, we, we need to go to this meeting and you need to drive with me. And when one of them pushed back on that, um, he was adamant that they drive together. And part of that was, again, that whole power struggle. Um, you're in a car, you're very close, sitting next to somebody else. Um, you know, there could be some touching that occurs in there, you know, pretending to reach for something and then brushing across the leg. Um, and then it could, you know, continue to escalate from there. And often it does escalate from there. Um, and it and it just seems like the harasser, like I said, is just kind of, you know, testing to see to what point he can get before the woman reports him. Right. You know, I was just thinking about the he said, she said, and the thorough investigation. I, you know, I think of guys that I know. And I can think of guys who are accused of sexual harassment. I would go, yeah, I've known that guy for a long time. He probably would do that. And there's other guys I think, no, he probably wouldn't. So that's an example. I think of an employer should just go beyond talking to that guy and look into their background somewhat to see if they do have that tendency maybe to be a sexual harasser. What should an employee do if she is experiencing this type of conduct? Because obviously it is very hard to come forward. It is extremely hard. I think that um, if you are feeling like someone, whether, again, it's a coworker or a member of management, is making you feel like you're an object or like you're less than um, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis, um, obviously, if if somebody engages in conduct that is um, severe, including touching you inappropriately, um, you should talk to friends and family about it. Um, you should uh, obviously consider reporting it. I know that's easier said than done. Um, however, if your business has human resources, you can go to someone in HR you can go to another member of management. If it's your own um, supervisor who's engaging in the conduct, you could go to that person's supervisor. If there's a person in management that you feel comfortable with, but who maybe is not in your direct chain, if you report it to someone in management, then they as a company would be required to look into um, what happened. I think it's important to write things down. So as the conduct happens, um, keep a diary um, and make sure that you're keeping track of comments, um, conduct, and, you know, if, if you can, on a regular basis, keep track of it. Um, it's also important if you do reach out to someone in HR or management and you do it verbally, that you also make some note of what you just did. So could put that in your diary. Uh, you could also send them an email. Um, you know, emails are hard to delete uh, mm -hmm. and just confirm, hey, we just had this conversation. I'm expecting you to look into it. Unfortunately, there are a lot of businesses out there that might be where this conduct will happen um, that are too small to have human resources. Perhaps the harasser is the owner 
CEO or highest level executive. Um, in that situation, you could go to the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. So again, we're talking about just Ohio, um, but Ohio Civil Rights Commission can investigate claims uh, for employers that have at least four employees. Um, you can go to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission if the company has at least 15 employees. Um, and then uh, there could be situations where um, the employer is some type of professional. So, for example, a doctor or an attorney, uh, and the victim could contact the board um, within which the harasser is a member. So whether it's the Ohio um, Board of Professional Conduct for an attorney or the medical board for a doctor, um, or if they're a member of, they have some other kind of certification, um, there could be a process for reporting sexual harassment through that um, association or certification. And then they can also contact an attorney. Sure. And you talk about taking notes about what is happening. Why, why is that important? Um, it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, one, particularly if you're taking them contemporaneously, it will help refresh your recollection about what's happening. If your employer is actually doing an investigation, it could help if you provide the employer with contemporaneous notes. So in that sort of she said, he said situation, if mm -hmm. she has contemporaneous notes and he has nothing, that could be or should be a reason why the employer uh, could give credence to what she's saying versus what he's saying. Um, and certainly if your case ever went into some kind of uh, legal situation, whether it's a lawsuit, having those contemporaneous notes is extremely helpful for um, recall and memory to know what happened. It's It can be difficult to remember, obviously, what happened uh, a few days ago. And um, certainly when you have a situation where you might also be, you're likely to be experiencing some emotional distress, that can make it even harder to remember um, dates and times and what was said and what was uh, what was happening at the time. And the more you have that recorded, um, the more trustworthy, I think, an employer, potentially a judge and a jury, um, could believe in what you're saying. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. And in previous podcasts, we talked about current employees and what they should do and the importance of documenting things. And I've been thinking lately about, you know, if there's a suspicion that the notes were not contemporaneous, you know, the employer thinks, well, you just wrote these down today about what happened six months ago, but you dated it, you know, six months ago. How do we know it was really contemporaneous? And one thought I had was maybe send an email to yourself. It's kind of like a date stamp, right? Yeah. I mean, anything they can do to kind of prove the validity of the diary or the journal they're keeping or maybe they have somebody witness it. I don't know. Um. Well, you talk about contacting an attorney. What do you? What's your advice on when they should think about that? I mean, I, I think it could happen at any at any time during the um, whether it's the conduct that is occur currently occurring, or um, perhaps the victim has already reported the harassment. You know, ob obviously. 
uh, I think I think it would be hard. It's hard for victims to to want to come forward um, right away with an attorney, but um, but often an attorney can help provide that sort of contemporaneous advice. Right. This is mm-hmm. this is you know um, what your next step could be in terms of reporting. Uh, and again, you know, an attorney can look at the situation to determine. Um, if it's a business that doesn't have an HR or doesn't have another member of management that the employee can feel safe going to, uh, then potentially help them file something with the House Civil Rights Commission or, or, or something else that would place the employer on notice of the harassing conduct. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I said, at, at any point in time during the process, even if the company does the right thing, um, it's not a bad idea to talk with an attorney to make sure that um, there isn't something else that that the victim should report or ask for or, um, you know, just, just to have somebody review the situation uh, to determine whether or not um, the company is truly doing the right thing. Right. Like, for example, you see often an, uh, an employer will move the victim – and as opposed to the harasser to a different department. Um, right. And, you know, you can talk with an attorney about whether or not that's that's the right thing. They've done enough. And, um, you know, or if you've decided that if, if they haven't fired the harasser and you find it difficult going to work, it might be a good idea to talk to an attorney about how to leave in a way that's to your advantage, whether that's with a severance or or something else. So, okay, you go to an attorney. Well, first of all, going to an attorney, does that commit you to doing something legally? I mean, I think a lot of people fear going to an attorney because they say, well, geez, I don't want to be in a lawsuit. Right. And um, for the most part, most cases, at least, you know, in in terms of our, our cases, they don't end up Um, or a lot of them don't end up in litigation because a lot of times you're able to work something out that is to the advantage of the employee before you get to that level. I think when it comes to sexual harassment cases, those tend to be even less uh, often result in uh, litigation. Um, There is certainly some incentive for the employer to to resolve that case before it ends up in uh, litigation. And there can be some, and there's definitely some incentive for the employee to potentially do that as well, because they are tough. Uh, they're tough cases. And um, unfortunately, um, when it comes down to, as you said, the he said, she said situation, the employer's position uh, that they the defense that they often take is to attack uh, the victim. So um, they're very they're very difficult cases, but but absolutely, I think often it could just be ongoing advice where the attorney isn't even notifying the employer that they're even um, in the picture, so to speak. They're just helping making sure that the employee is doing the right thing in terms of how to report it and. Um, protecting herself as much as possible um, and or if it's potentially a severance negotiation uh, that won't typically get to a litigation setting. 
Well, and you also mentioned earlier the difficulty of reporting things. The, the people don't want to report it to their employer. They don't want to go to an attorney because they're afraid of getting fired. So what happens then? You know, the employee goes to HR, says I'm being sexually harassed by my boss, and then the employee gets fired. Can they do anything about that? Yes. Um, if by reporting sexual harassment, the employee has engaged in what's called protected activity under the law. And uh, once they do that, if the employer decides to then terminate the employee because she has engaged in the protected activity, then she would have a retaliation claim, which would be actionable under uh, state and federal law. Now, other than going to an attorney, talking to your family, are there other resources you would recommend to sexual harassment victims? Yeah, I think that I know I mentioned the Ohio Civil Rights Commission, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. There's also a um, an organization called Times Up Legal Defense Fund. Now, the, that organization does help victims of sexual harassment uh, potentially um, obtain legal counsel. So, for example, if you're not in the in the tri-state area, um, and you're looking for legal representation, contacting the Times Up Legal Defense Fund uh, could be a start. It also has um, other information. Uh, they have other information on their website about um, how to potentially get help. Um, I just earlier was looking at, uh, I know I mentioned New York law. Um, New York has a really good website on on sexual harassment and sort of looking at it from the perspective of what constitutes sexual harassment. That's something that, you know, somebody, um, if you're not sure exactly if what's happening to you is sexual harassment, um, they have a lot of really good information, including a, uh, a pamphlet from the Division of Human Rights in, in New York. Um, but, it, but again, there are... Um, there are other there's similar content on the EEOC's Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's website as well that can be helpful. Now, you mentioned earlier about how hard it is for a woman to bring these complaints and you've handled many sexual harassment cases. I'm and this is probably unfair because I didn't ask you this beforehand or to do any kind of data analysis, but how many times would you estimate that a woman came into your office and said, I'm the victim of sexual harassment. And you sat there and not believed her. In other words, you know, some people just kind of are sketchy individuals. You see a lot of people with employment problems. And I imagine sometimes you don't believe the person who comes in for a consultation. You think that's less true with sexual harassment victims? Yes. And why, why maybe again, do you think that? I think a victim of sexual harassment, um, it, ta- it takes a lot for them to come forward. They're embarrassed. Uh, often they doubt what happened to them. You know, they, they question whether or not it was their fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, they question whether or not it was actually sexual harassment. Uh, I think those are hurdles to uh, victims coming forward. So I think someone who has called an attorney, actually had a consultation with that attorney, 
uh, maybe prepared some paperwork ahead of that consultation, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're really sort of reliving this trauma that has happened to them. It it takes a lot to do that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I can't think of a single instance in which somebody came to me uh, alleging sexual harassment that I didn't believe that right. something had happened to them um, of uh, potentially a sexually harassing nature. It might be something that didn't potentially rise to the level under the law, um, mm-hmm. but um, but even that, I'm 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 struggling to think of a particular incident where even that has happened. Yeah, you know, I think of it as a parent. You know, I've got three daughters. And I think of it sort of in the context of the George Floyd thing. I, I hear these stories about African-American parents having to have the talk with their son or daughter when they're very young about confrontations with the police. And I almost feel it's, it's kind of made me think in the context of my daughters, I've got to teach them or talk to them, not maybe teach them, but talk to them about how important it is to trust their gut. Right. When some guy is being an asshole <laughs> and he is sexually harassing and coming on, they number one, they got to say no. And number two, if it continues, they've got to stand up for themselves. I mean, it's it's sort of the same concept. And I think it's just a different variation of the same problem. You've got a person in authority, the police officer. You've got a boss in a position of authority. And what the heck do you do? So thanks for coming in for episode number nine of Freaking Out About Work. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread. For recognition as well as cash. For astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com and freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone.